This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Welcome to America Change Forever. I'm Jeff Begays. The election aftermath is the topic. Today, Glenn Youngkin will be the next governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia. In case you haven't been paying attention because there are so many other important things going on in your life, Youngkin is the Republican who supported former President Trump's policies, but didn't really embrace former President Trump on the campaign trail. He threaded the needle when it comes to wooing Trump supporters. We're going to talk about that coming up. Because that Virginia governor's race was seen as a bellwether race, if you will, a barometer for the upcoming midterm elections. How is President Biden doing in office? What does that race say and the other Democratic losses say about the Dems right now and the president right now? Are they too woke for their own good? Could they lose the House in the midterms? And what about Congress? Seems like there is a lot of gridlock. You hear a lot about Biden and Manchin and cinema, and less about things getting passed. You barely hear from Mitch McConnell. Could it be that he's lying low and waiting for the Democrats to destroy themselves? All that and more ahead. Let's begin with the state of politics in the country after last Tuesday's election. I want to focus first on the Democrats. Jamal Simmons is a political analyst and a Democrat. Jamal, is the Democratic Party in panic mode after Tuesday's election results? There are going to be parts of the Democratic Party that are at war with each other after these results. As people start to figure out or try to figure out what happened, what went wrong. Um, the truth is, with a state like Virginia, uh, it's clear that there are lots of things that didn't work. And so they're going to have to figure out um, how to how to make that, how to fix that. But, it, 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 you know, it, it seems like toward the end of that race things started swinging Youngkin's way. Is that because there were signs the Republican voters, Trump backers were going to show up at the polls while the Democrats were showing up earlier in early voting? What is clear about the Republicans is that they have figured out how to turn out their voters. Um, even when Donald Trump lost his reelection in 2020, Republicans did better than expected in House races and Senate races around the country. So those Republican voters just didn't vote for Donald Trump, right? So I think what we saw in Virginia and in New Jersey, uh, even though New Jersey looks like the Democrat may actually eke out a win, but it still would be a much smaller win than um, Joe Biden's. Um, what we're seeing is that the the Democrat the Democrats aren't turning out their voters, and they're losing 
in the competition for the small, small number of swing voters that are out there, they're losing that competition while not turning out some of their core voters. And I think there are lots of reasons for that. One of them is maybe they're not investing in those voters early enough. They, you know, people have been saying for months, you had a bunch of kids, young people, black and white and Latino who showed up and marched and protested and did all this stuff for a year in 2020 and then got Joe Biden elected, focused on voting rights and police reform. Voting rights and police reform are not on the Democratic docket anytime soon in national politics. So the voters who they need the most are not seeing Democrats focused on their issues. You know what? That is a very good point. Something else that I observe with all the coverage is the focus on President Biden and how what happened on Tuesday is a reflection on his administration and what they're doing wrong. If you're waking up in the White House after that election, what are you thinking? Oh, no, I'm in danger. You should be thinking my congressional majorities are in danger. Um, Listen, Virginia is a is a is a tough case to make because again and again, uh, when a president's party wins, uh, the president's party tends to lose that state in the next election. That's the election that comes a year later. Um, so, you know, it is it is clear that Virginia might. This is the trend in Virginia for the opposite party to win the governor's election the following year. Um, but what is also true is that you've got to get a message that is selling to voters, let them know what you're doing for them, let them see and feel what you're doing for them. So they need to pass the legislation that they think will work and spend some time talking about that legislation. And then focus not just on the swing voter population that Joe Manchin seems to care about, but also focus on the population that somebody like Raphael Warnock needs to worry about down in Atlanta, who's got to turn out more African-American voters in order to get his Senate seat back. So the Senate majority is not just at stake because Joe Manchin may or may not stay a Democrat, is at stake because somebody like Raphael Warnock may or may not win his election in 2022. All right. So where do the Democrats go from here? How do they build towards success in the midterms? Um, Democrats need to pass their uh, legislation around infrastructure quickly and then get out of Washington and talk to people about what's inside these bills that are going to help people, um, you know, pre-K, uh, pre-K funding for kids, a universal pre-K, getting make, making sure that uh, adults and parents, grandparents who are sick are going to be able to stay in their own homes and have some assistance. So people like me who are in what they call the sandwich generation, you got kids at home and then you got parents on the other side who need a little more help than they did before. Um, people just need a little help. And so Democrats have to get out there and, and sell that, sell that. Um, they also, again, need to pay attention to the concerns of the voters who surged in the 2020 election to help get Democrats elected. Those young, black and white Latino voters who care about police reform and voting rights. They need to get something done to make those voters feel like they're being heard. Yeah, but... That's that's difficult, isn't it? Because a lot of the, the voters that you just talked about, they're in the progressive camp. And what we saw in Tuesday's elections is is that it doesn't look like the 
progressive woke message is selling? Well, I, I, I would say you can see two messages. One is the progressive woke, maybe the progressive woke message didn't sell and with some of the particularly white women who voted for Joe Biden and did not vote for Terry McAuliffe. But the moderate uh, messaging isn't selling to the African-American voters who didn't show up in Northern Virginia or in Hampton Roads uh, to vote for Terry McAuliffe, right? <laughs> so you've got to do two things at the same time. You've got to get those swing surge voters who are atypical, uh, particularly young, particularly African-American, and sometimes now Latino. You've got to get them to be invested enough to show up at an election to give the swing voters a chance to matter. So you can't look at the scales and say only one side of the scale matters. You've got to deal with both sides. Yeah. And, you know, as you were answering that question, I was just thinking there were a couple of names running through my head. Eric Adams, the new mayor elect in New York City. Um, you know, he let's use him as an example because he he is not a progressive. He he has, you know, demonstrated at least for now that he's more more moderate, um, more in the center of democratic politics. You know, as a former cop, uh, and having worked in New York for a long time, I remember in the early two thousands. Uh, showing up to press conferences that he was giving on a sidewalk with Letitia James, who's now running for governor of New York. And they were at these makeshift memorials, a murder scene. They were community activists, you know, so in that sense, they were probably more progressive. But right now, you know, these are black politicians who are trying to be appeal, at least to, to be appear to be more moderate you know, so is that is that the solution for democratic politics? Finding candidates who are perhaps people of color. Look at what look at what happened in Boston. Uh, you know, with the new mayor elect up there. Yeah, it's 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 remarkable. Yeah, Boston, Pittsburgh, Boston, Pittsburgh, uh, <laughs> Buffalo. Uh, yeah, there there are there are big cases. Listen, I think. I, I am not going to sit here, I would not and have not for the last year and a half thought that defund the police was a good message for Democrats to have in their um, in their message box, right? Um, most people, like the ones I grew up with in Detroit, want more police to be around. They just don't want the police to show up and kill people for no reason, right? They want the police to act inside the bounds of propriety. So saying that you're going to deal with police reform doesn't mean that you're going to um, wipe out police departments. It does mean though you're going to reimagine policing and think about making sure you've got the right people in the job, they're being governed the right way, there's oversight that's checking them, right? There are things that you can do short of snatching money away from police officers. So, but you've got to address the question that some of these activists are concerned about. And voting rights isn't just good for the activists. It's good for the country and certainly certainly for the entire Democratic Party because if you don't have um, if you don't have the ability for v democratic voters to show up and participate in, in, in the easiest way possible and you, and you, and not be afraid that those votes are going to be nullified afterwards because state legislatures can take over local voting operations. If you don't have that ability to assure democratic voters 
are going to be able to participate, then no Democrats are going to get elected, <laughs> right? In, in competitive in competitive places. So um, voting rights to me seems like the most important issue outside of uh, the economic issues for Democrats to be focused on. The GOP has to be feeling pretty good right now. There were some surprises on Tuesday. All right, let's be honest, a lot of surprises. And the overall theme coming out of that election day is that the Democrats better figure out a winning strategy and fast. President Biden may be dragging down some Democratic candidates and progressive politics might not be a winning strategy. But let's see what's next with our guest and what he thinks. He's probably still recovering from GOP galas, not parties, galas, because they have a lot to celebrate. Eric Erickson is a Republican strategist. Eric, thanks for being with us. Thanks very much for having me. All right, so we have a lot to talk about, but let's start with the Commonwealth of Virginia. What do you think that Glenn Youngkin did right besides the obvious? He really focused on an issue that connected across party lines in a way the Democrats did not realize. Uh, so it's not that, for example, Democratic voters didn't turn out. They actually turned out in higher numbers than they turned out in 2017. It's just a lot of them voted for Glenn Youngkin. Uh, the Democrats ran a campaign in the past uh, trying to tie Youngkin to Donald Trump, who is nowhere to be found right now in Virginia and not the president, instead of focusing about what they would do in the future. While Youngkin took an issue that galvanized people across party lines and said how he would fix that if he became governor, uh, and those are the sorts of political campaigns that actually work. I, frankly, I'm surprised that Terry McCullough, who really is a master political strategist for the Democrats, ran the campaign he ran. It, it was a very bad campaign. Well, let's talk more about Youngkin's campaign. What specifically do you see as a successful strategy that other Republicans across the country could use? He's got to talk about uh, local issues and how uh, his office can make them better. Uh, he's got to tie them into national issues if he can. And education right now is a very big one in COVID policies. Uh, and other Republicans can do that. He, they've got to be able also to figure out diplomatically how do you handle Donald Trump, who did want to go campaign for Youngkin. And, and held some events with supporters to get them engaged without being tied to Yunkin. I get asked this a lot by people, and I tell them all the time, there are some states where Donald Trump campaigning for you will help you, and there are some states where it'll hurt you. You've got to be able to figure out how to use Donald Trump or not use Donald Trump without alienating independent voters and persuadable voters. Yunkin was able to crack that nut. Ironically, People are missing this. Youngkin's 2021 gubernatorial campaign team was the Ted Cruz 2016 presidential team. <laughs> I guess I missed that, too. Wow. But what you when you talk about the tap dancing that Youngkin had to do not to cozy up to former President Trump, you know, it's easier said than done doing like something like that. I mean, McAuliffe was running Yunkin commercials throughout the campaign, tying him to President Trump. And then some of the statements that Yunkin made reminded a lot of Democrats of President Trump. So, you know, it's really not that easy walking the tightrope that he was able to successfully manage. It, the voters didn't bite on those issues. They gave Yunkin a lot of grace to say he, he's not going to embarrass me like Donald Trump embarrassed me. 
And the the as much as the McAuliffe team tried to say no no they're they're the same or they're working together or or look Donald Trump's holding an event for him the voters really didn't bite on that issue even Democratic voters in Loudoun County McAuliffe still won it but a lot of them went with Youngkin because of the education issues there uh, we see this down in Virginia Beach where the Republicans did better than they've done in twenty years and it was because. Terry McAuliffe offered them nothing other than Yunkin is Donald Trump, and Yunkin showed on the campaign trail he wasn't Trump. And all right, so you mentioned that he, Yunkin, was a great candidate. Was he really? Look, he won. The, he won the governor's race. Definitely, that that that's a good candidate. Uh, and yes, uh, there were other candidates uh, out there in the in the Republican primary. But Yunkin started off in a way that a lot of us, myself included, were critical of. He never hit on issues. It was very uh, pablum. It was very fluff. It was very uh, sweet biography, no substance. But he then was able to define himself. And while McAuliffe was trying to define Yunkin, Yunkin was defining himself. And then the issue popped when McAuliffe uttered his statement about uh, parents being involved in education, that September 30th debate. Yunkin was able to seize on it and pivot quickly to an issue that cut across party lines. He had already defined himself. McAuliffe had spent so much energy defining Yunkin, thinking everyone already knew him, that Yunkin was able to turn that on McAuliffe, and it caught the McAuliffe team at the end off guard. Yeah, especially since the McAuliffe team felt like – Youngkin's team had taken McAuliffe's words out of context, but that's politics, right? The McAuliffe team, they kept doubling down on this. You you don't go campaign at the last minute in Virginia with the president of the teachers union when that many parents are mad about schools being closed. Yeah, good point. Fair point. All right. So looking ahead, do you think the Youngkin candidacy now turns the page on Donald Trump in terms of 2022 and 2024. I, listen, I, I think you're going to see kind of a Brian Kemp playbook there with Yunkin, where when Brian Kemp ran in Georgia, he was perceived as being Donald Trump's guy. His campaign ads were very Trumpian. He lost the suburbs as, as a result of that. Uh, but then when he became governor, he set out and was his own man set up his own policies, alienated Donald Trump in the process, uh, but in fact was has been able to capture, according to opinion polls in Georgia, has been able to get suburban voters back as a result. I think you're going to see Yunkin, because he didn't campaign with Trump, he wasn't didn't have Trump wrapped around him, he's going to be able to assert himself as his own man moving forward, and I think Virginia voters will appreciate that about him uh, moving forward. It gives him more wiggle room. And now... Listen, my day job is covering justice and homeland security. But I watch enough politics to know that I think when former President Trump was president, you were critical of him. Is Am I mistaken? No, no, no. I, I didn't support him in 2016, uh, and but maintained a pretty steady criticism of, of some of what he did. I'm, I'm not personally a fan of his. The party moving into 2022 and 2024 – needs to realize uh, they can have Trump or Trumpism. And if they have Trump, they probably can't get the White House. If they have Trumpism, they might be able to get more than the White House. Yeah, so what you're saying is it is the cover on the bottle rather than the 
than what's inside the the substance of what is inside the bottle. You know, I mean, you can you can share some of former President Trump's idea, but it's how he packages it that I think is so offensive to so many people. Yes, I, I think so. If you look at a Ron DeSantis in Florida, for example, Democrats obviously don't like him, but the voters in Florida tend to and his public statements to some degree can sound very Trumpian. But when you look at his policies, they actually come across as fairly reasonable policies. We, we can uh, argue over COVID, but economic policies, education policies, he's been a pretty substantive governor there in ways people wouldn't expect him to be if he was just defined as another Trump. Uh, there are ways the GOP can move mm. forward uh, with the elements of Trumpism that build a coalition, uh, including of Hispanic voters. Look in Virginia. The, the exit polling from CNN and NBC shows that Youngkin won 52% of the Hispanic vote in Virginia. First time a Republican's done that. Uh, in, in New Jersey, the biggest shift has been um, Hispanic voters in working class neighborhoods towards the GOP. So there's a path forward for the GOP they haven't had before Trump. But I think it kind of hurts them in the suburbs if they go to full Trump. I'm going to get you, a Republican strategist, to you know, give me your your opinion on the Democrats right now. I mean, it, if you look at big cities, they did well. There were people with progressive ideas who weren't really calling themselves progressive in New York, uh, for example – uh, Eric Adams, and then in Boston, mm-hmm. the new uh, mayor-elect um, is a disciple, if you will, of Elizabeth Warren. Um, and so it really is, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, how you sell your ideas. What we're seeing is on both sides of the aisle, people who are too far out there in terms of practical ideas aren't going to win. Yeah, yeah, listen, uh, across the nation, it sounds like the, the larger defund the police effort lost and, and major progressive uh, pushes lost. There are enclaves of the country, of course, where rabid conservatives win and where rabid progressives win. Most of the country, though, they just want to be respected. They want to feel like their kids are getting a good education. They want to be left alone. And if Democrats do that, I think they'll be OK. But when you head into the midterms, the win tends to be against the party in power, as we all know, the biggest I think disadvantage the Democrats have, honestly, is that the Democrats and much of the mainstream media do now inhabit a bubble that is largely coastal, uh, overwhelmingly white and college educated. Eric, I'm a little offended. I mean, I I guess you'd probably put me in that mainstream media bubble. I I don't know that I would. (laughs) Um, It depends on on where you live and and how you connect to people. But when, when you go on CNN, MSNBC, read the New York Times or the Washington Post, uh, where a lot of people get their news these days. A lot of the reporters and a lot of the Democrats are living in the same areas, come from similar backgrounds, share similar views about society. And as a result, it's not, and I tell conservatives this all the time, the bias in the news is not that they're willfully out to get you. The bias in the news is that they pay attention to different things than you. And right now, it's very clear from both the reaction of the Democrats after what happened last week in Virginia, New Jersey, and the rest of the country, Democrats are paying attention to things uh, that the rest of the country isn't, and the rest of the country is paying attention to things Democrats aren't. To the extent Democrats and members of the media travel the heartland outside of presidential campaign years and talk to parents, they would have seen that, yeah, parents really are concerned about education. Forget the critical theory stuff. They're concerned about school shutdowns and masks and and what they've heard on the Zoom calls 
uh, and the Democrats really thought that was just conservative bellyaching, and it wasn't. Uh, the, the Democrats and, and the media need to understand that there are conversations happening in the country that they oftentimes ignore and think it's just Republicans. And as we're even seeing in New Jersey, it wasn't just Republicans. All right. So let's look ahead. And I'm going to kind of put you on the spot. And I think I, I know some of the names that you might mention. But if you're now looking beyond 2022 to 2024, does Glenn Youngkin fall into that bucket with uh, the governor of Florida? Uh, who else is on that list for the Republicans who might run for president next cycle? I, I don't know that he can. Uh, may, maybe so, but he would be his third in his third year as governor of Virginia. You know, back in the day, I remember the Republicans were all over Bob McDonald, uh, even before the, the indictment and, and the like. But McDonald being governor of Virginia was too uh, too much of a moderating force to make it through a Republican primary. I suspect that will happen with Glenn Youngkin. Uh, he will come across as not conservative enough to get a Republican nomination. And that leaves you with Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Ted Cruz, Tom Cotton, Josh Hawley, maybe Doug Ducey from Arizona. Uh, and, of course, the specter of Donald Trump looming over everything. Out of that group, do you have a favorite? I don't. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's one of those things where I'm friends with a lot of them. I, I, I know a number of them personally. I, I think each of them is going to have to be able to define themselves as their own person, and each of them is going to struggle in a different and unique way to them on how do you bridge the gap between the Republicans who don't want another Trump and the Republicans who only want Trump. Can't wait to see it. Really appreciate your input. Eric Erickson, Republican strategist, thank you very much. We'll be right back with more America Change Forever from CBS News. I'm Jeff Begays. What about Congress? As I said at the top of this program, you don't really hear a lot from the Republicans these days in Congress. Seems like they are ducking while the Democrats throw stones at each other. Will the Dems get KO'd in 2022? Nicole Killian is a CBS News congressional correspondent. Nicole, do you see and hear from the Republicans these days, or do they have their bowl of popcorn just sitting and watching the Democrats self-implode? Well, I think it's a combination of both. Uh, you know, Republicans have uh, certainly taken a backseat with respect to this reconciliation or social spending package that the Democrats are pursuing, mostly because it won't require Republican votes. So there's really no need for them to get involved. Now, there is a companion infrastructure bill that is bipartisan that some Republicans may support. But for the most part, that bill has already been negotiated. It's been passed in the Senate and more or less it's waiting in the wings in the House until Democrats win agreement on this larger social spending package, at which point they'll probably bring this infrastructure bill up again. So uh, to the extent that, uh, you know, Republicans are uh, vested in this process, besides, again, perhaps a couple of votes uh, towards infrastructure, they really are taking a back seat and blasting Democrats over what they believe is reckless spending. I don't know. I haven't seen Kevin McCarthy on TV lately. I haven't heard from him on radio lately. So what what is going on with him? Is he is he focused on getting uh, winning back the House? Is that why he's sort of keeping his head down, it seems? 
Well, I wouldn't say he's MIA by by any means. I mean, look, you know, Republicans have really been focusing their messaging around what they believe is rising inflation. Again, pointing the finger at what they believe are uh, Democrats, uh, again, in their view, reckless spending plans and uh, really, you know, fighting some of these culture war battles that we're seeing play out in states like Virginia, where we saw Glenn Youngkin uh, emerge as the, the victor in, in that governor's race, uh, really playing up his campaign to take on issues with respect to critical race theory. I mean, those are also issues that uh, Republicans on the Hill have been raising and bringing up as well. And while they haven't gotten a lot of attention, they may now get more attention in light of some of these results that we have seen uh, come out of Virginia and some of these other states. What do you think is the Republican agenda on the Hill right now? Not just in terms of talking points, but in hardcore legislation. What are they trying to get passed? Well, in their view, you know, I think they primarily are continuing to hold out in the sense that you know, right now, Democrats are in control and Democrats are the ones controlling the agenda. So uh, basically, uh, while there are some areas where Republicans are attempting to work with Democrats on, for instance, you know, whether that's uh, the National Defense Authorization Act, which involves defense funding, or whether we're talking about uh, reauthorizing the Violence Against Women Act, there's some bipartisan discussions along those lines. You know, again, in terms of a social agenda, it really is controlled by Democrats. So to the point we raised earlier, you know, Republicans are taking a backseat from that vantage point. And also important to note, uh, from a fiscal standpoint as well. You know, many Republicans uh, have made very clear that they will not help uh, with respect to a potential fiscal crisis that we'll be facing at the end of this year with respect to the debt crisis. So I think, uh, you know, as far as Republicans are concerned, it's not necessarily that they don't have an agenda. But, you know, when you have a majority party in control, and if that majority party is not necessarily working across the aisle on a number of issues uh, when it comes to their agenda, then there really is kind of no um, need for them to to get involved, if you will. And so to that extent, you know, it is more about messaging and more about posturing and positioning themselves for the upcoming midterms. And so from that standpoint, uh, you know, we do know that, uh, you know, Republicans continue to fundraise, that uh, many Republicans continue to maintain ties with the former president, and that really they believe that, uh, to your point earlier, (laughs) Democrats may self-implode if they have trouble getting their agenda passed. So to that extent, uh, you know, they continue to argue that uh, they feel that, uh, you know, the Biden and administration is failing the American people in many ways, whether it's the border uh, and and issues of immigration, whether it's the situation in Afghanistan. And so, uh, you know, their position on this is that as Republicans, uh, they are the ones who can kind of fix some of these issues uh, and and put America in a better position. So I think that's kind of the messaging that you will hear uh, coming from Republicans in the coming weeks, in the coming months, as we now transition towards this uh, 2022 election cycle. Well, uh, what, what is interesting here, I think, um, 
know, based on what you've just said. You talk about how uh, the Republicans in the House have embraced former President Trump. But if you look at the results of the Virginia governor's race this past week, you see that Glenn Youngkin, uh, soon to be governor of Virginia, did not totally embrace Donald Trump. And so is that a lesson for House Republicans? Well, many political analysts have argued that that could be a playbook for Republicans going forward, that, you know, you utilize the former president uh, to the extent that you need to, but that you also operate at arm's distance. And I would argue that that often has been a strategy of of both parties, uh, quite frankly. But uh, in terms of uh, specifically looking at Republican strategy, I mean, you know, many of them on the Hill kind of already do that to a certain extent. Uh, You know, you have some Republicans who don't necessarily fully embrace uh, the president, uh, but may embrace uh, more of his policies. And, you know, while you have folks like uh, Kevin McCarthy and others uh, within leadership who have, you know, actively uh, met with the former president and and continue to maintain a relationship with him. Uh, There are others who, you know, if you ask them about the former president, someone like a Mitch McConnell, they really don't want to comment or or entertain anything uh, related to the former president. So I think you're already seeing congressional Republicans try to walk that line. Speaking of walking that line, I was going to ask you, you know, your personal observations, what is it like working Congress as a correspondent these days. I know when I've been up there, what I notice is that there are a lot of reporters, uh, a lot of members, staff members wearing sneakers. There's a lot of running around going on on Capitol Hill. What's it been like for you covering that feat? Well, absolutely. You always have to wear flats. <laughs> That's a lesson <laughs> number one. Um, but look, you know, lesson number two, I think, is just how uh, polarized I think our politics has become. And I think you feel that on the Hill to a certain extent, you know, whether you're looking at this debate right now within the Democratic Party between moderates and and progressives or between Republicans and Democrats and and how it is very challenging for them to get along um, on certain matters, you know, to a certain extent, I think January 6th absolutely played a role in some of that as we have seen that whole issue. And you know it very well. Jeff uh, has become very politicized here on the Hill to the point that you have a select committee investigating that right now that only has two Republicans um, and you know, the rest of the panel uh, are Democrats. It's not evenly balanced. And that is something that, uh, you know, leadership had hoped to accomplish. But uh, you just wonder going forward if we can get back to that point of civility where, you know, Republicans and Democrats can work a little closer together on some of these issues of country. Um, that really is what the Congress is and and should be all about. So, uh, you know, that has certainly changed the dynamic as has COVID. You know, we have seen obviously Congress work through that issue and uh, there certainly are less people up here on the Hill. A lot of events have had to be pared back. Many of those are starting to come back, but, you know, that does affect your ability uh, to 
engage other members. You know, I remember early on in the pandemic, some senators were telling me, you know, they used to meet for these regular lunches, just uh, collegial, you know, to just be able to, you know, sit down with a colleague. And, and so, you know, some of that has fallen by the wayside. And again, it's starting to come back in the pandemic. But, you know, to the, cert- to the extent that members can actually sit down with each other, that they're not jetting back off to their districts so quickly, um, I do think uh, could go a long ways in, in building back some of that collegiality that many members uh, feel has, has been lost over the years. So, uh, you know, look, it's, it's always a very vibrant place to be. Um, <laughs> And, you know, we'll, we'll just kind of have to see again as, as this midterm cycle plays out how that affects the balance of power going forward. Nicole Kelly in CBS News congressional correspondent. Thank you. You bet. Let's continue our conversation about what's going on on the Hill. Chris Van Cleve is also on the Hill for CBS News. Chris Would you call what is happening on the Hill right now gridlock? And what I'm referring to, of course, is the fact that all we hear are President Biden's name or Joe Manchin's name or cinema from Arizona. So what is going on? Are they getting anything done? Well, I would call it Groundhog's Day more so than gridlock. You know, it it, every day it's you, you sort of start with the same thing, which is. Is this the day that we get X milestone met or hit X threshold that could bring us to to the next step in this reconciliation odyssey? And you you really are starting to hear a lot of grumbling from staff, uh, from members of Congress and and certainly reporters that this all feels like Groundhog's Day that's just going in a circle. I've likened it to a staring contest as well. Is there progress? Yeah. You know, incrementally, there appears to be progress, but... At some point, you have to start wondering if good becomes the enemy of great and this whole thing just goes nowhere for for Democrats. It seems like every time they take a step forward, they get half a step back. And, uh, you know, is anything getting done? That's a that's a, a real good question. I mean, judges are being confirmed. Things like that are happening. But as far as advancing the Biden agenda, it it's beginning to feel like Groundhog's Day day after day. Yeah, it really does, especially, you know, if you're if you're watching uh television, if you're listening to the radio, you just it feels like you keep hearing the same old story. But part of the reason why I wanted to talk to you about this is because, you know, recently I was playing golf and for some reason I started thinking about Congress and, you know, obviously it didn't help my golf game. But I was just thinking, you know, perhaps this is a good thing. Perhaps, you know, let's let's take our, you know, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, take that hat off. And just from the perspective of and this is going deep, Van Cleve, I'm going I'm talking history here and the Constitution and the founders And perhaps this is what they would want to see in terms of how Congress is operating right now. We know that, you know, as far as public approval ratings are concerned, Congress is not popular. But, you know, neither are presidents these days. Uh, And, well, they don't like the media too much either. But anyway, 
you know, is this the way it should be happening in that you have Democrats who have control of the House? You have the Senate operating the way it does, narrow margins there to get anything done. But then you have these two Democratic senators who are holdouts. I mean, they're essentially they have so much control right now. But could that be a good thing if you're an American citizen and you're wondering if if Congress is actually working? I don't know. It seems to me like they are actually working because they're negotiating. And is it ever a good thing if one party has total control over any uh, branch of government? So on one hand, uh, you have Joe Manchin and and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona sort of working uh, as their own checks and balances on the the Democrat majority, Democrats majority. But, you know, you're talking about razor thin margins in the House, three three to four votes. Um, and in the Senate, it's it's either all Democrats or nothing. If you're trying to move uh, a, a, an agenda, uh, it, it's a tough way to do business. Uh, I think where you start asking, is this what is this in the best interest of the American people is that, you know, you you don't get a whole lot of give and take on either side. There are issues where, you know, the, you're just not going to get Republican support in part because Democrats support it and vice versa. So that I don't think necessarily is what the framers had in mind when they when they created the, uh, the this deliberative body in the Senate. The thought was that debate and uh, thought would bring bring both parties together to to move things forward. Um, that said, some of the things that we're hearing senators and, and members of the House wanting to read the bill before they vote on it. That makes sense. <laughs> well, that that does make sense. I mean, we've known in the past there have been this there's been these debates about whether, you know, this legislation has actually been read by members of Congress on both sides, like whether they're actually reading the legislation that they're voting for. Yeah. So I, I have a hard time criticizing somebody who goes, well, I'd like a couple of days to read this before I vote on it. Uh, you know, that that seems reasonable. I I think the the thing that the Democrats have done uh, throughout this process have set arbitrary deadlines and now have set um, some potential cliffs for themselves uh, that every time they don't meet one of these aspirational deadlines, it gives, sends the message that nothing's getting done. Um you know, on the flip side of that, you had some senators and some members of the House that had a real concern about spending $3.5 trillion after spending nearly $2 trillion on a COVID relief bill. Uh, and that conversation is probably healthy for democracy. That's, uh, in theory, what you, you would want your legislators to do is to, to work through their concerns and get to something that, uh, that, that works for as many people, a majority, if you will. Um, but it's it, it's turned into quite a, a laborious process, and I think some of the the angst and frustration people are feeling is they keep hearing about these deadlines. Um, you know, we've been hearing that there's going to be a vote this week, basically every week for the last month and a half. Yeah, and now that we have just come out of this uh, election across the country, and the GOP is feeling the wind at its back. And we hear that the Dems now might try to rush to pass the Biden agenda. 
after the bad election night for them. Do you, do you suspect that that's what's going to be happening, that they're going to try to rush things through because they're now really concerned about the midterm elections? I would say that Congress's definition of rushing and mine are probably different things. <laughs> um, you know, I don't know that that the this process moves fast by by any means. Uh, and, and I think the real question you're asking is how much finger pointing happens between uh, par- portions of the Democratic Party, because, you know, I think the mistake we can make is thinking that because there are two parties that all Republicans and all Democrats are in lockstep. And what we're seeing here is that uh, there is quite a range of ideas on on the Democratic side. Uh, and it, so what could happen is that uh, moderate Democrats look at this and say, well, we need to take a step back. Maybe we're doing too much. Or does this galvanize everybody to, to, to do something? Uh, I do think there is a growing sense that you know, put up or shut up is coming soon. And, but is that, is that going to be this week? Is that going to be before Thanksgiving? Is that going to be before December 3rd when the government runs out of money? Uh, and in theory, the debt ceiling has to be raised. Is that going to be before Christmas? Uh, I don't know. And, and I, I think from a, a congressional standpoint, which I, I sometimes would describe as a glacial process, that might be a rush. My definition of a rush would be like, can we have it done by five? So, all right. I, I also want your insight into Joe Manchin. <laughs> what? what? And listen, I have interviewed him over the years. I find him to be a charming gentleman. Uh, but it just seems since it seems like since Joe Biden became president, he is he has Manchin has decided, OK. I'm going to see how powerful I can be. I'm going to throw a wrench into everything and just see how much I can get. What What do you think his motive is? Is it is it about doing everything he can for the state of West Virginia? Is it about potentially setting himself up for running for president one day? What are his motives? So Joe Manchin is a moderate Democrat from a state that President Trump dominated in two elections. So the fact that you have a Democratic senator in a state like West Virginia is significant. So West Virginia is a huge coal state. Obviously, coal is a red line for Senator Manchin. Uh, Senator Manchin also knows he's running in hostile territory uh, in a lot of ways. Um, So it shouldn't be a surprise that he and somebody like Bernie Sanders um, are are not going to be ideologically aligned. So, you know, what, what, what's fueling Manchin's mind? Uh, you know, I, I, I can't speak for the senator, but I, I do think some of it is uh, making it clear that, that he's got West Virginia's back, even if that isn't necessarily what um, the rest of his, his colleagues in the Democratic Party may want him to, to – to, how they may want him to vote. I think, you know, the other side of this is every single Democratic senator right now is essentially the majority leader. Any one vote that falls out uh, means Democrats can't move forward on this reconciliation bill. They need all 50 senators plus the vice president to, to, to advance things. So it does allow Manchin to to flex, uh, to make the Senate flex to what, what he thinks is important. We've seen Senator Sinema do that as well. Uh, you know, the, the thoughts that there would be a bipartisan infrastructure bill had kind of fallen apart 
uh, and then you saw a, an effort led by Senator Sinema that crafted that compromise. Um, she also has expressed concerns about the reconciliation bill, and uh, some of that is because she's from a state that, while it currently has two Democratic senators and voted for Joe Biden, calling Arizona a Democratic stronghold would be uh, misunderstanding the politics in Arizona, I suspect. So um, some of this is enlightened self-interest, right? They'd like to be reelected. Uh, some of it is certainly uh, what's best for uh, their states. And, you know, I think Joe Manchin also, um, on some level, enjoys being at the, the center of this. Um, you know, I think it sends a message to voters in West Virginia that um, he, he's a deal maker and that, that he's, he, he's, he's an important part of all of this and, uh, and that, you know, what he gets done for them is done for them. And that's, uh, that's something that he can run on. You know, I, I, I get what you're saying. And I think, you know, no matter what you think or what one, not you, Chris, don't, you know, I don't want to offend you. Not not you, but I'm just saying general, generally speaking, no matter what people think, it does take courage to sort of go against the tide. You know, your colleagues, your Democratic colleagues were hoping, OK, we have control. You know, we're in good shape. We're going to pass all this stuff. And then you are Senator Sinema or Senator Manchin. You say, well, not so fast. I don't know if I like. Let's take this slow. It does take courage to stand up to the president, stand up to the leadership, and make the decision that you think works for the people you represent. Yeah, I think to Joe Manchin's credit, uh, he is one of the politicians that pretty much does what he says. You know, he hasn't changed his position on most of this uh, throughout the process. Uh, you know, I think you could you could ask uh, in hindsight if Senator Schumer, the majority leader, should have circulated Manchin's one page. This is these are sort of my red lines memo that he gave uh, the majority leader back in July. If that should have been circulated immediately, uh, because Manchin tends, in my experience, to be somebody who more or less does what he says. Um, does he does he kind of court the media attention and talk at every opportunity? He does, and you know it's great that he's out there taking questions. Senator Cinema. Um, doesn't really answer questions from the from the media. I mean, I can count on probably one hand the number of times I've seen her uh, around the building. She's very good at g getting in and out of uh, of here without uh, by, by avoiding the media. She doesn't. Uh, she doesn't talk to us. Well, Chris, come on, Chris. I don't know if I I'd probably try and avoid you too, man. You know? Well, I get that a lot, but even other people in in the press <laughs> corps don't don't see okay. a lot of Senator Cinema. OK. All right. Well, that doesn't make sense. You know, I mean. Um, all right. So you mentioned Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. He is sort of it's. And listen, I cover homeland and justice, so I don't focus as much on politics, but I like talking politics. So you brought up Chuck Schumer, another gentleman that I covered a lot, having worked in New York City for 10 years but he's sort of uh, given up the reins of negotiating these deals to the White House, or am I mistaken? Well, I think that you have a you have a lot of chefs in this kitchen right now. Uh, certainly, Senator uh, Schumer is one of them. But you know, this is the president's agenda, and there are certain things that need to come from the president. And that's that's I, where a lot of the a lot of folks up here feel this sort of is. Um, 
you know, President Biden has apparently told House Democrats that uh, he'll work with Joe Manchin, that he'll work with the Senate. Um, and we, we heard that from progressives after uh, Manchin's Monday uh, announcement that where he was like, where, where he said he he might support something. But then again, he might not. Um, you know, progressives have said the president told them he'd handle Manchin in the Senate. Uh, but that doesn't mean that Schumer's not a player here. Um, you know, you, you, you've certainly you're certainly seeing efforts um, by both Schumer and Pelosi. But uh, at, at, you know, at some point, the president probably has to be the one that closes this deal. And uh, that moment is, if it's not already here, is rapidly approaching. Well, and I'm sure – I mean, listen, everybody knows because the Republicans tried to make an issue of it during the election that uh, Joe Biden spent 40 years uh, in Congress. Uh, and so I'm sure President Biden says, hey, I got this. I know these guys. They're my buddies, you know. Um, and I'm I'm sure, you know, he enjoys rolling up his sleeves and getting into Senate business, whereas, you know, we really haven't seen that with recent presidents. Obviously, President Trump wasn't in that kind of space. Pres president Obama, yeah, he spent time in the Senate, but not a lot of time in the Senate. But Joe Biden, you know, unabashedly will tell you, yeah, he's a he's a creature of the Senate. You know, that's his thing. He loves it. He makes no bones about that. And perhaps that's, you know, President Biden saying, you know, I can do this. I know these guys. I can work with them. What do you think? Well, that's certainly what uh, what the president has said publicly. And he's going to have the biggest test of his career if that's true right now. Uh, yeah, he he has seemed willing to let this take its time. Uh, you know, he didn't make a he's made two visits to the Hill that I can think of. Uh, and one was on the eve of the, uh, of his trip. Um, you know, he, and he's certainly been meeting with with House members and senators, but has been pretty comfortable with letting uh, the pace continue with the at, at this sort of crawl. So. Some of that probably is a familiarity with how this is done. You know, things take a long time until they don't, and then they can come together very quickly. Um, but this also isn't the Senate of uh, Joe Biden's days. Um, you know, this is a Senate that uh, is in the midst of uh, of culture wars as a as a political tool, um, and, and one that often feels like members of both parties are more talking to their. Uh, social media and cable network uh, of choice uh, more so than each other. Yeah, this is an approach that is uh, fraught with pitfalls, potential pitfalls for this president. And I wonder if it's weighing on his public approval ratings, which are sagging. Um, so, you know, he could come away with some wins, but if he doesn't get more done and the public doesn't view him as getting more done on the Hill, that, that could really be a problem for him. Well, you know, I think about it in, if you're, if you're a member of the member of Congress up for reelection or, you know, you're, you're, you're Joe Biden, you have a bipartisan infrastructure bill that, um, states and cities say will help them that the, most Americans support that isn't that hasn't been passed, hasn't been voted on. It's sitting waiting for the House to do something. That's a hard thing to explain to the average American. I don't know that the average American cares about the process. They care about the results. Um, 
you have this buy this build back better agenda that if you're going to do the the average american's been sitting here watching you talk about doing it um so the question is are you going to do it or you're not going to do it flip side of that argument most people won't remember if it took 10 extra weeks or 10 extra minutes once it's done uh the danger here is in not doing anything and once we get into January of next year, we're firmly into an election year, and it gets a lot harder to do anything up on the Hill when you have the entire House up for re-election and a third of the Senate up for re-election. You know, Senator Blumenthal from Connecticut, a solidly blue state, uh, said today that, you know, he's got to run for re-election next year. They need to get something done. So when even safe Democrats are concerned about the public perception that Congress can't get anything done, that Democrats uh, haven't delivered, that's... That should be a red flag. You know, Debbie Dingell at one point uh, said the D in Democrats is for delivers. It's going to be for debacle if something doesn't get done. That is it for this week's America Change Forever. You can download previous episodes wherever you download your podcasts. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at Jeff Begay's CBS where you can send program ideas. What do you want us to look into? And follow me on Instagram. At Jeff Begay's six. My thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. I'm Jeff Begay's, and that is how America changed forever. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Millie Vanilli, the Grammy winning multi platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds, but none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.